Welcome to the Ridley College Chapel podcast. Our mission is to equip men and women for God's mission in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. For more information, visit ridley.edu.au. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstance. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, Not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have had more than enough. I am amply supplied. Now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. It's the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. I'll be focusing on verses 10 to 13, but we read the whole chapter because it's part of a bigger, bigger argument. But let us pray. Lord Jesus, you are here in our midst and you are the Lord of your word. So we come with expectation to hear from you this morning. I pray, Lord, bring out of hiding what is hidden in our hearts from you and from ourselves. And teach us, Lord, to embrace you more fully. So in your name we pray. Amen. Imagine you've been called to preach the gospel and you will try to reach the unreached in Melbourne. The church plant in Craigieburn an outreach cafe on Sydney Road, perhaps, or a mission or community in the inner west. How will you pull it off? 
or savvy missionary will form partnerships, lots of them. He'll get other churches and organizations to back him financially and in prayer. Now let's imagine you found the most amazing church. They're so eager to partner with you and to support your ministry. In fact, it's the only church supporting you at the moment and it's the church you planted a long, long time ago. Surely that's a partnership made in heaven. But as you go ahead and you start planting your church or you start running your cafe, you suddenly start receiving emails, phone calls, voice messages. We'd like you to only use the Australian hymn book. Please don't use guitars. We will not support you if you keep preaching about sin. It makes us feel horribly uncomfortable. Please stop wearing those terrific hoodies. We can't take you seriously like that. Now you'd be like, what? What just happened? That's not what I signed up for. I wanted a partnership, not another church bossing me around. Now to our minds, this might be a strange scenario perhaps, but rest assured, churches will happily boss you around in ministry with their expectations as they pay your salary. But this scenario was real to Paul's mind. He had a partnership made in heaven with the church in Philippi. And they've been his faithful supporters for the longest time. And they've just provided him again with a great gift after a long period of being out of touch. So Paul now needs to find a way to navigate their relationship so that he doesn't end up with a new boss. What's the big deal with a gift, you might wonder? Well, Paul in his day faced social conventions around giving and receiving gifts. The dominant thought was if you receive or give gifts, you establish a relationship. If you receive a gift, that implies the obligation to reciprocate. You now owe someone something. And gifts relate to the issues of powers and status. So one giving the gift is the one who holds the power and the superior one in a relationship. So there's actually quite a lot at stake here. Paul receives a gift, but the way how he receives it is very important. So he tries to do that in a way whilst avoiding all the baggage without being ungrateful. But it explains why Paul doesn't say straight up, thank you. And he's even more hesitant to say, I need this gift. In fact, the very opposite. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that you have now at last revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned for me, but were without opportunity to show it. I say this not because I'm in need, for I've learned in whatever circumstances I am to be content. So remember, if he said thank you, that would create an obligation. And if he would say, I need this gift, that might imply the need for further support, or it would make the Philippians superior in this relationship. So Paul has to tread carefully. Rather than a straight up thank you with all the baggage attached, Paul expresses great joy in the Lord. In the Lord, a subtle reframing of the entire discussion. Paul and the Philippians are answerable to the Lord. And their relationship is founded in their union with Christ, not in their gifts. 
as he goes on, Paul might be seen to voice criticism of their lack of concern as he says, at last you revived your concern for me. And maybe this suggests the need for further giving. Rather, in the next verse, Paul clarifies, he expresses his trust in their concern for him all along. They were simply without opportunity. But then comes his real trump card. He says, I say this not because I'm in need, for I've learned in whatever circumstance I am to be content. Their gift was most welcome, but he did not need it. Their support is wonderfully encouraging, but Paul is fine without it. And if Paul doesn't need it, then no one can make a claim on him. He doesn't owe anyone anything. But still, he says, I've learned to be content. What is he on about? He flips things on its head using a cultural model that was readily available to him and to his listeners. The key word, the key word here is content, is the Greek word behind our English autarky, a self-sustaining closed economy, like an isolated country far away from the inhabited world without outside help or trade. So here you could translate it as content or as self-sufficient. Now contentment or being self-sufficient was the big ideal of Stoics. In Paul's day, Stoic philosophers had made it their purpose to be self-sufficient, to live above adversity and abundance, to live detached from distress, to dominate emotion with reason, to be unaffected by changing seasons, like islands digging deep within weathering storms without any outside help. Paul says, I've learned to be content. So he sounds a lot like a Stoic philosopher at first reading. But he quickly turns the idea on its head. He is doing some constructive theology. To me, it sounds a lot like being in class with Scott. Sometimes I say things and Scott finds a few good bits in my answer and turns them into an amazing statement that I could never have come up with. And he usually begins by saying, so do you mean that dot, dot, dot? So by the end, you're just left nodding. Like, yeah, even though you did not understand half of what he just said. Well, he takes the Stoics as the student trying hard in class. It's the best model out there for contentment. It's a philosophy widely known, and he uses it as a springboard to subvert expectations, to show how Christ is key for believers. Paul breaks it out of the closed economy of self-sufficiency. He does away with the scarcity mindset of Stoics. He takes contentment to a whole new level. He writes, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know how to be in need, and I know how to have plenty. I have been initiated in any and every situation, both in having my fill and wanting more, both in having abundance and in being in need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Boom. And the Philippians are just nodding. Yeah, yeah. that's what we thought you were saying, Paul. Paul is saying, I've gone through seasons of poverty and prosperity. 
I have lived through hunger and overflowing provision. I have faced deep scarcity and great abundance. And in all these experiences, I've learned how to be content. I was initiated through them into a deeper experience of contentment in Christ. But the only way I can do this is a person, a union, an intimate mind-to-mind -mind relationship. I can do all things in the one who strengthens me, Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now, this is nothing new. Paul has been preaching this all along. Everything needs to be lived in reference to the Lord, and everything we need is found in the Lord. So if you go back to the start of chapter 4, we read, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. And as we turn away from anxiety in prayer and thanksgiving, we receive peace from God that guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Paul continues, be careful what you think about and whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. And then I, I rejoice greatly that at last you renewed your concern for me, but I've learned to be content. I can do all this in him who gives me strength. He closes off. It was good of you to share in my trouble. And your gifts are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. So our passage today is at the center of Paul's argument in chapter 4. Paul is describing a new way of life in the Lord, a deep conversion of the heart, a journey from the world of Stoics and poverty and abundance to the realm of Christ, peace and joy. The deep conversion we needed all along is from anxiety to contentment in Christ, from fear to trust in God. And this is a journey where we offer our little obedience and God turns it into something glorious. A conversion where God is doing the heavy lifting. Did you notice? God's peace guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. God's presence is with those who put things into practice. God's strength enables Paul to be content. God will meet all their needs according to his glorious riches in Christ. So true contentment simply reveals the work of God in our lives. And Paul embodies this as a model of obedience and contentment. He models this for the Philippians and for us. Paul is speaking to a Philippian church who faced material hardship. The main effect of persecution because of their faith was economic exclusion and poverty. So Paul says to them here, in effect, I can be content in Christ, and you can learn this too. In Christ Jesus, God has broken out of the scarcity of your lives, and God has broken through the limitations of your resources. 
Remember, Paul wrote in verse 9, whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. So Paul clearly expects this church to follow his example. And he clearly expects that contentment is available to them, just as it is to him. Paul is no superhuman, but merely an example. An example of someone in whom Christ's strength is made visible. But Paul's model does not only highlight poverty, also riches, abundance. His contentment goes beyond dealing with lack and embraces the overflow of goods. He says three times, I know how to be in need and how to have plenty. I've learned to be content when I had my fill and when I wanted more, when I had abundance and when I was in need. Paul's realized something important and we should too. We can have everything and still be anxious. We can be rich and still live like we're poor. We are in Christ, but we can still think money and abundance is the answer. Consider, for example, how wealthy we've become just in the past century. I was reading this book on the plane recently as I flew back to the Netherlands on how the Netherlands have changed since the Second World War. And just imagine, as a thought experiment, everything in your home has been given a tag with the date it was introduced into normal middle-class households. What would you see? Well, indoor toilets, 1960s on the earliest. Fridges, 1960s. Warm water from the tap, you wouldn't have to go to a hotel anymore just so that you could experience that, somewhere in the late 1960s. Having apples all year round, that technology was developed only like late 70s or 80s. Having broccoli in the supermarket, 1980s. The list simply goes on. I can't personally imagine my life without broccoli, but I'm also, <laughs> also keenly aware that I have been blinded to how wealthy we are simply by growing up in the time that I do. 30 years ago, things were exotic that I now take for granted. So. The book even said our wealth has quadrupled in 60 years after the war. So all I'm trying to say today is we probably live with more wealth than any other generation in any other points in history. Now, if you've read to Jesus, if you've listened to Jesus' teaching, can you see the immense spiritual pressure that is placed upon us? Have you noticed the force of mammon at work in our community? Poverty was not our problem. The greatest increase in wealth in human history has only laid bare the real issue. The issue all along was our hearts. Why else are Australians such extreme workaholics? I learned recently that no one except Americans in the developed world work longer hours than Australians. Why is that? Our trust is in the wrong place. Our faith tracks the wrong metrics. Our hearts serve the wrong master. Money is not big enough to fill our hearts. 
Wealth is not rich enough to satisfy our longings. More is no longer enough when you put it on the bank. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in God. So we need to urgently reimagine life. We need to reimagine life in ministry. We are called to embody the hard-earned, long-learned secret of contentment in Christ to his body, the church. We are called to face our finance with God's strength. We are called to face people's anxiety in the presence of God. We are called to subvert the wisdom of the world with the Lordship of Christ. So if we take contentment today as the starting point of our thinking, contentment in Christ, can you imagine the kinds of ministries you might consider when you're already content in Christ and not concerned with status? Can you imagine the kinds of boundaries you would put in place around your work because your heart's already filled with Christ? Can you imagine the living standards you would accept because what you're after is Christ, not money? Can you imagine the financial security you would be willing to sacrifice because your gain is Christ? Can you imagine the great risks you would be willing to take because your life is in Christ? Can you imagine the kinds of things you would dare to do because you're in the realm of Christ? Can you imagine all of your life simply as a testimony to the strength of God? That's what's at stake here today. Paul invites you here and now to a life of contentment in Christ. He writes, I've learned to be content whatever my circumstances, and I can do all this in him who strengthens me. I am able because he enables. Contentment in Christ breaks through scarcity and anxiety. It's a complete game changer. You play with a different game with different rules. There's no loss when you own nothing but Christ. There's no gain when you have everything already in Christ. There's only peace that surpasses understanding and great joy in the Lord. I am able because he enables. We are able in him who enables. So will you let your heart find contentment in Christ today? Let us pray. Father, in your great mercy, you gave us your Son to be for us our life, our joy, and our peace. We thank you for the strength you provide. We praise you for your presence in our lives. Take us deeper into contentment that we may truly live in Christ and walk in his steps as we serve our church and this world you love. For your glory. Amen. Thank you.